0: Okay, guys. Uh, so it's good. Come on in, Mr. Ray, if you want to. You're gonna bother anybody here? Um, good to be back. Uh, so where did we leave off? Um, I heard there was, there was some discussion a minute ago. What's going on in the hallway? You know, wh- wh- who, what classes are being taught? Who's teaching what? I think we've got some some other transitions going on too in the way of uh, of topics and things that we're we're teaching in our Bible study classes, but. The Sunday before uh, Christmas, we finished up uh, what was our seventh lesson in the Song of Solomon. Of course, we went through that book uh, fairly at a fairly quick pace, uh, hitting what I sort of considered to be those things that were ma- mainly the high points. We actually did make it uh, in our last Sunday Sunday together uh, through the end of Chapter Eight, although we sort of condensed five, six, seven, and eight of that book uh, kind of really flew through that um, and really condensed that, uh, that material. This morning, uh, what I'd like to do is I want to sort of, I guess you say, <laughs> make some final comments uh, concerning marriage and then s- sort of tie that, th- those things into our next mini-series. Um, now, as we, we went through the Song of Songs, we made a lot of observations about the marital relationship, especially as it relates to things such as, as romance. Uh, we talked some about the a, a sex, sexuality in, in the context of a marriage relationship, as well as the importance of affirmation uh, in, in that relationship. Uh, we said, you know, that's sort of what Song of Solomon is. I mean, that's from, from sort of a macro perspective, big perspective. It is a, it is a book that celebrates marital love, both on an emotional and on a physical level. And so you you see these these physical components, but then certainly you don't you don't miss the emphasis on the emotional and the spiritual and the relational dynamics that take place in a in a marriage relationship. But we we must not forget that this emotional or this physical attachment is one that goes all the way back to God's original plan and purpose for the man and the woman in in marriage, which reminds us of several things. First of all, it reminds us of the gravity of marriage, uh, what we call the Mike might, might refer to as is the the weightiness, the gravity of of, of marriage itself. The fact that Marriage was established by God for his glory. Uh, it was the first relationship created between two human beings, and it is the most fundamental and basic institution in society. And that is the way that the Hebrews, the Old Testament, always can when they would think about community, when they would think about a city, they would always th- they would think about the community in terms of the families. They would think about the community in terms of if you boil it down to those, those marriage or those, those uh, smaller family family units. And that is why Hebrews 13, it's because of this, this uh, the gravity of marriage, that's why Hebrews 13, 4 tells us that marriage is to be held in honor. That is to say it is to be valued, it is to be viewed as precious among all, and it goes on and says and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge, Judge, and we talked about that. We referred to that passage, I think, a couple of times in our series. So it reminds us of the gravity of marriage. It also reminds us of the permanence of marriage. Uh, marriage is a, a covenant relationship. It is a solemn and binding arrangement that should never be manipulated. It should never be minimized. Uh, there's a number of Old Testament passages that emphasize this. And again, this is just sort of pulling a lot of these things together that we've looked at. But Proverbs 2.17, it's actually speaking of the adulteress in that verse, but it says the adulteress, speaking of her, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. So basically it's saying that's what takes place when, it, when adultery occurs in a marriage, that's, that's at the core of it, at the core of that unfaithfulness. Is that an individual has forgotten, has set aside, has minimized a covenant that they've made in in the presence of God? Uh, that idea that that what we do in a marriage, that commitment that we make to one another, is done in the presence of God, is is also mentioned in Malachi chapter two, verse fourteen. Says the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against. Whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So, in that case, we have both an emphasis on the fact that a marriage relationship is a covenant relationship, but also tied to that, that faithfulness in that covenant relationship as well as unfaithfulness in that covenant relationship are are witnessed by God. So, that's what we also saw in Proverbs chapter 5 and 6 and 7 this idea that the Lord knows the ways of a man. Right, And, and that, that, that statement is made in the context of the sexual relationship in, in a marriage relationship. It's just saying that God looks on that and he, he knows whether or not the things that are taking place between a husband and wife are pleasing to him, uh, honorable, um, infused with integrity or not. I mean he sees the fidelity or the lack of fidelity and truth. In the New Testament, Matthew 19, verse 6, in the second part of that, Jesus is speaking about marriage. He says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And he uses this term of joined, it's translated maybe uh, differently um, in in other translations. This is the New American Standard. But the idea is, is of being yoked together. Uh, so the the Lord has done this. When two people come together in marriage, that's what God does. He yokes them together, and and Jesus simply says it's because God has done this that no one should ever attempt to separate or to divide those those whom God has paired up. So God has taken these two individuals and he's paired them up. He's he's joined them together, and it's because of that that we are to take these these commitments seriously. So it reminds us of that. It also reminds us about the companionship of marriage. The companionship of marriage. Marriage does provide an opportunity for a unique companionship. Uh, in that Proverbs 217 passage, the the writer, Solomon uses this term companion, in that verse. What's interesting is you, if you go over to Proverbs 1628, you basically find the same term, but there it's not Translated as companion is translated as intimate friend, but that's kind of what it means, right? I mean, what it's saying is that in in the context of marriage, that's what that's what we are. I mean, we are we are to be uh, intimate friends. We find this word companion. It's actually a, it's translated as companion in Malachi chapter two fourteen. Uh, it's actually a different term, um, but it speaks about something that is joined together as as a set. So it made me think of that. Uh, forget which one of those movies with the uh, the Kendrick brothers. You know, I've done some of those Christian films, but the one with the salt and the pepper at the end of the movie, the salt and pepper shakers, the bride and the groom on the on the top of the, but they're glued together. Nobody's seen that movie. <laughs> that may have been the best part of it. So, um, but it's just that God has put these together as a set, and again, it has that same same idea back that term joined together. God's paired them up. He's yoked them together. He's joined them together as a set. And then we have, of course, the foundational verse, Genesis 2, 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So you have these two terms. You have basically suitable helper. Suitable means to be opposite of. And so that term basically is Stressing the idea that that a, that a wife was designed to complete, if you will, or to complement her husband. She wasn't meant to be exactly like her husband. She was meant to complement him, and of course, we see that in in a, in a number of ways. Uh, then you have this term "helper." So we have a suitable helper. What's interesting about the term "helper" is that in in many Old Testament passages that term for a helper actually is a term used to describe the Lord himself. So you see this, particularly in the Psalms, where you see the psalmist says something uh, sort of like this, that God is my help, right? And he kind of plays off of the same same Hebrew root. And I think in Genesis, when, when Moses is, is, is records this for us and says that, and he's talking about marriage, and he says a wife is to be a suitable helper, I don't think that what he means by that is that the wife is simply there so that we can get more done, right? I mean, like a helper, we think of a helper, it's like when we were, you know, on a building project, you know, you might have a, a foreman, a guy that's sort of leading a part of that project, and then sometimes you, you, you say, well, I, I, have help, I have some helpers coming with me. In other words, I have some guys that are going to do, I remember working for John Whelan Holmes as a teenager, and I was the brick thrower, Okay, so where I started this job, It had to have been January. I don't remember exactly, but all I know is it was cold, and that the guys built a roaring fire in a big fifty-five or whatever gallon drum in the, to get warm. You know, like something you'd see like in an alley in New York City or something. So all these, you show up, it's dark, it's early in the morning, and my job was to take this big pile of bricks and to throw them to the second-story guy on the scaffolding. <laughs> I quit after a week, all right? It was the most miserable job I've ever had. I was so, I couldn't move. I mean, you'd be surprised if, you, when you do this all day, after about three days, you can't do it anymore. I was like, I'm done. I will go find another minimum wage job somewhere else. Yeah, I was a helper. I don't think what, I don't think what Genesis is saying is that when a man, when a man finds a wife, Proverbs says he finds a good thing, Right? I don't think it means that she is just meant to be there to help him get, get more bricks laid. you know, Just get the job done a little bit faster or with a little bit more efficiency. Now, I'll admit, I get more done. My wife helps me to get more done. Okay, And, and, and I, there's a variety of ways that she does that. But I think the fact that we find this term used in reference to God... When, when the psalmist says, God is my help, he's not saying, God helps me to get more done. In fact, most of the the context that most of the psalms are actually written, are, we're talking about trials and troubles of life, right? I'm, a, I'm envisioning the psalmist in a cave somewhere, hiding, fleeing, running for his life, um, Uh, friends, even maybe even family members have abandoned him. The psalmist basically say these things to us, right? That these people have forsaken them and that they're in this difficult situation. But then in contrast to that, those kinds of statements, the psalmist says, but God is my help. So what is he saying? What's the emphasis? The emphasis is not that God helps us to get more things accomplished. The emphasis in those passages is that God is near us that God is defending us, and that God will not forsake us even, even when everyone else leaves our side, right? It's, it's his comfort that God is his help, meaning it's, who else? I mean, I don't, there's nobody else around. Everybody has left me, but God is my help, and I'm saying if, if you think about this concept of suitable helper in that light to me, that's that's that is helpful because now I realize that my wife's not there to help me to just get more chores done or more errands run throughout the week. She is the person that when everyone else disappears and evaporates, she's the one that's there by my side in difficult times. And, and it, ought to, it, ought to be, it, it ought to go both ways, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's a place for me to serve in that way in our relationship as well, to make this commitment that I'm not going to forsake you. I've I've given you my word, and I'm going to keep my word. And of course, we have this, shortly after that Genesis 2.18, we have this important verse in verse 24, which is the only statement about marriage that God mentions four times in the Bible. Uh, it says, and again, we've, we've covered this ground, but it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is God's all-time blueprint for marriage that directs husbands and wives to leave their fathers and their mothers, making their marriage relationship their primary human relationship, emphasizing their commitment to one another, the fact that they are fastened together, and the fact that they are one flesh, which should motivate them to strive for unity and transparency and intimacy in their relationship and to remain steadfast in unconditional love, in reconciliation, and sexual purity. So needless to say, those are the things that are attacked, right? I mean, those are the areas, the very things in marriages today that are under assault. Uh, I, I came across an article in the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, there's a, 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 a biblical counseling coalition is, a, is just an association of, of counselors uh, a lot of these people that are a part of that have actually come and taught at our counseling conference uh, that we've done for a number of years. Uh, there's there's a guy named Deepak Raju. Uh, Deepak is, uh, is an elder up at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington. If you're familiar with Mark Dever, he's the pastor of that church. But what they did uh, starting a couple weeks ago is they took – this website and this association has been around, my, my guess, maybe five years, something like that, six years – but they started, you know, they, they, they put out a regular post on their website and they have all these different people that are members of that association that write in, in, for them, write these different articles. And what they did is they basically looked at the counter and, and saw how many people have, have viewed or downloaded these different blog posts over the years and they took the top ten. They said, you know, and so my understanding from this list is that this one by Deepak is the, is the number one viewed post in the last five years on this counseling site. And the title of it is 10 Ways That Satan Loves to Watch Marriages Fall Apart. So I just want to want to read this, and as I go through this, I'm going to give you a list of 10 things. Don't worry about writing these down. I actually have listed them on the board over here, Just uh, if you're just trying to keep track of, of where we are. But this is what he writes. He says, According to the Bible, Satan prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour, but many times he probably doesn't have to do that much. I wonder if sometimes Satan sits back and laughs at us. Marriage can be extremely messy. As sinners, we can do dumb things in marriage. We hurt one another, we make false assumptions, and then miscommunicate. We manipulate or say mean things to our spouse. We think less about serving and more about being served. We don't always follow God's word or advice from godly leaders. We put our hopes in the world or each other more than we put hope in God. We don't need Satan to ruin our marriage. We do plenty of unhelpful things on our own to ruin our marriages. I'm sure Satan enjoys having a front row seat watching our folly and foolishness. What does he see? And then he goes on and gives this list. And and I don't think these are in any particular order but he calls this the battlefield of marriage. And these are just things that he's just, he's just speaking as a counselor saying, this is the stuff I see all the time. And, and this is what Satan is probably just sitting back and saying, well, I don't have to work very hard because it seems like th- these families are doing all they can to destroy their relationships. Number one, spouses living in the flesh and not in the spirit. He says, picture a fight. You and your spouse are arguing about something big or small. And at just the right moment, you are faced with a decision. It's the moment that I've heard some call the watershed moment, the point at which you pick a path to follow. You can satisfy your sinful flesh or follow the lead of the Spirit. You can go, you, you go down the path of a nasty fight or honor your spouse by admitting you're wrong. Which do you typically choose? Number two, no sex in the marriage. If you are fighting... The last thing you want to do is to be intimate with with each other, right? Conflict is a barrier to intimacy in marriage. The two are not one, but two. One of God's purposes for sex is to foster oneness or unity in your marriage. Couples who don't have regular sexual intimacy are allowing a barrier to come between them. No sex in marriage means the couple is less unified. Number three, a husband is consumed by pornography. This causes him, he says, to be distracted from his wife's beauty. Sometimes he gets drawn in by a pop-up. More often he simply gives in to lust and aggressively pursues it. She discovers it. It quickly shatters trust in the marriage. She is devastated and she asks questions like, am I not desirable? Why would he look at other women when he has me? Worst of all, is there something fundamentally wrong with me? Number four, lofty, sky-high expectations. He says, I've seen men crushed under the weight of their wives' perfectionistic expectations. The husband says things like, she expects me to be a holy man. He constantly feels like a failure and therefore has little to no incentive to actually work at the marriage. She beats him up verbally, not physically, because in the words of one spouse that I counseled, quote, nothing else seems to work to get him to do anything. End quote. Number five, nuclear war. Where's, uh, he was asking about that. Uh, oh, yeah. It, so "I, I want to." What is that nuclear war thing? How does that fit in here? <laughs> he says, you go head to head every night. You have nasty, mean, tears evoking, loud screaming, door slamming fights. Sometimes it does get physical and you are weary. Very, very weary because you don't know how to stop the fights. Yet you are tired of dealing with nuclear war every night of your life. Number six, avoidance and withdrawal. The most basic response to any difficulty is the famous fight or flight response. In marriage, the flight response often looks like avoiding your spouse. Maybe you live in the same house, but you live separate lives. After a fight, you avoid one another rather than doing the hard work of dealing with each other, or maybe you hide at work in order to avoid the marriage. You are really good at your job, so you often get praise and affirmation at work, but never at home. Is it any surprise that you like being at work more, especially when home is a war zone all the time? Number seven, hate speech. In the heat of conflict, we say things that we all regret. I have a friend who calls this stupid talk. Things come out of my mouth, and the moment it launches from my lips, I regret having said it. I wish I could pull it back and stuff, back, stuff it back into my mouth. Sadly, I ignore the maxim, not everything that comes to my mind needs to come out of my mouth. Number eight, weak boundaries. The husband flirts with a woman at work by saying nice things to her. He finds her attractive. He finds ways to go out of his way to encourage her. And sadly, he doesn't, even, he doesn't ever demonstrate the same kind of deliberateness with his spouse. There is no physical, immoral interactions, but his verbal affirmations and emotional flirting goes beyond what would safely be deemed as platonic. Wives are capable of doing this too, Oftentimes, in retaliation to the husband's careless boundaries, number nine, work idolatry. You love your job and you pour yourself into it to the detriment of your family. You rationalize, "They need me at work," or "She doesn't understand the pressure that I'm under at work." If you were honest, you would. Your your work matters more than your family. Miss Bell. Your work matters more than your family. You cherish your job more than you'd. You do your wife and kids. And number 10, lying. Lying can destroy trust in a marriage. A spouse lies because he's trapped and doesn't want to have his sin exposed. For example, a husband who has been secretly having an extramarital affair. Of course, he is embarrassed for anyone to find out. He's emotionally and spiritually immature. In a word, you, you married someone with poor character. Sad, isn't it, to see so much foolishness? This is the typical battlefield of bad marriage. This is why we put our hope not in ourselves, but in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It is sinners such as these that Jesus came to save. Now, of course, you could add to that list. I mean, it's not, this isn't, you know, these are just Deepak's thoughts on this. What I find interesting is that out of the ten things that Deepak mentions here in this post... Three of them could be put into the category of unfaithfulness or impurity of some kind, and six of them could be put into the category of either communication problems or relational conflict, which is really what I want to address in the next few weeks. Uh, I mean, we've talked about in a series of, in Song of Solomon, we've talked some about the the issue of faithfulness and fidelity and... and um, and, and, and guarding our, our marriage covenant and those types of things. Uh, we, we haven't said as much so much about communication and conflict. We did mention that in Chapter 5 of Song of Songs, there is what I believe to be a misunderstanding, miscommunication, uh, post-marriage that leads to a, a, a conflict, if you want to call it that. We, we kind of skimmed over that. And the reason I did that is because I really feel like this is such a significant issue not just in marriage but in our lives in general, I see people mishandling this on such a regular basis that we got to talk about this. I mean, we, and we need to pull it out and do it not just as it relates to marriage. My reason for pulling it out really is to say we need to work on this in every relationship. I mean we're, we're, we're having to deal with this on a, on, on a regular basis and we need to know what God's Word teaches us concerning those particular issues. And, and all of these things that Deepak mentions, I mean all ten of these, work against God's design for marriage. All of them do. So what, it, what is at the heart of marriage? And you may want to write these down. Again, I'm just, just sort of summarizing and then we'll kind of go towards the conflict communication th- just here at the very end and then what we'll do in the next few weeks is we're actually going to just walk through basic biblical principles of conflict resolution, what scripture has to say about that. So just maybe just three things for today. First of all, faithfulness is the heart of marriage. Faithfulness is the heart of marriage. We could say that love is the heart of marriage, but to do that we would need to know that love, biblically speaking, is a term that speaks less about feelings and desires and speaks more about commitment. So the heart of marriage is faithfulness or better still, faithful love or steadfast love. Right, which is the best translation of, of an important Old Testament word for the love of our covenant God. We, we, we see this described for us in Exodus 34, 6 during a, a time of terrible unfaithfulness on the part of Israel. It says, verse 6, The Lord passed by, this is his interaction with Moses, he says, The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, or as the ESV says, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, which is a description of God throughout the Bible. In fact, that verse is one of the most often referred to verses in, by other writers in the Old Testament. I mean, this is a consistent theme in the Old Testament, the fact that, that God loves us with a steadfast love, with a, with a faithful kind of love. God is a faithful, steadfast, passionate lover and he calls men and women to show faithful, steadfast, passionate love in their marriages. So this thing called marriage has little to do with falling in or out of love. It has everything to do with keeping your promises. We are to be faithful. Faithful because every Properly married couple is joined by God, right? We've seen that already. Faithful, because marriage is a covenant to which God is witness, right? Remember the Malachi passage, Malachi two. In fact, the verse thirteen of that chapter. This is this is the Lord says. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand yet you say for what reason <laughs> so god's not he's not accepting their worship he's not answering their prayers and they're going what what what's what's happened why is this going on and then he says because the lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you've dealt treacherously though she is your companion and the and your wife by covenant so this is what the Bible says of a wife, that she is her husband's compa- her husband's companion; that she is joined to him; she is his friend, the one who goes through life with him. She is his wife by covenant, implying that this is a relationship that the parties have in that the parties involved have chosen; they've entered voluntarily into. I said this; I I did the ceremony last Saturday for my son and uh, and uh, Joe and Moe. Um, and that was one of the things that that um, that I emphasized to them is that I've never been to a wedding where the wife came sort of was dragged down the aisle kicking and screaming. I mean, you just don't see that. These people want to get married. I mean, that's, that has been the case in every single wedding that I've been a part of. And that's 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 the concept here. Is there's a covenant? This has been a voluntary promise that these individuals have made, and it and it, and it also implies that this there's this is a relationship with obligations where each has made certain promises to the other and entered into those commitments and here's the challenge and the warning it means a it means a relationship with god as witness right so when we got together on saturday it was basically these two people are exchanging these vows on it, there's Two, kind of two things going on here. I mean, or maybe you might even say three, they're making these commitments to one another, but they're making these commitments in the presence of God, who would hear these things and know these things if nobody was able to get there because of the weather. But then on another plane, they made these things before these other witnesses, right? And in fact, if you go and you really look at the history of marriage in general, and cross-culturally, marriage has been viewed, and I think this is actually, there's biblical support for this. Marriage is actually viewed in the in the Bible as as more of a civic promise in other words it 's something that 's made on a social level as much as much as it 's made on a sort of i guess you say a spiritual level I mean we know as believers we 're doing this we 're doing this in the presence of God, but what i 'm saying is that what 's important about those exchange of vows is that they 're done on a public level that people know publicly that these individuals have made these promises, that they, their relationship has fundamentally changed when those things have been said, right? Those promises have been, have been made. So people are witness to this. God himself is witness to this, which means that he is present when the promises are made, and he holds each of the parties responsible to keep their promises, And what Malachi tells us is that the reason that God would not listen to the men's prayers in his day was that they had broken their marriage covenants, and God was holding them accountable. So saying, why isn't God hearing us? Why isn't He? Well, because that promise you made way back there, because you haven't kept that—that's a big deal to God that that you haven't done that. So much so that He's not. There's a blockade, right? This, is, this has been, been something that's interfered with your relationship with God, your, your uh, fellowship with Him. So this is the heart of marriage, faithfulness to a promise, not going with the ebbs and flows of a romance. And marriage isn't just a friendship. It is a sexual relationship that excludes all rivals for life. So it, it has this idea of there is a companionship, I mean, my wife is my intimate friend, but if it's only friendship, then the Bible would be saying, go have as many as you can, right? Right. I mean, the Bible encourages friendship, right? I mean, you want to have lots of good friends, right? So be, be friendly and, and, and make friends, but, but that's, it's not just that because it drives us towards exclusivity, so it's a combination of both. It is that my wife is my intimate friend, but there are promises that are made that basically say to her and to I, it's just the two of you, right? Uh, there's not a third. There's not a fourth, right? This is something that is that is uh, between her and I. So faithfulness is the heart of marriage. I would say number two, faithfulness in marriage is modeled on the faithfulness of God. Faithfulness in marriage is modeled on the faithfulness of God. That is to say... though. Say, those of us who are married are called to keep covenant promises of marriage because God keeps His covenant promises. He makes covenant promises and He keeps them without fail, even in the teeth of opposition and the face of unfaithfulness. Think about it. The story in the Bible of God's marriage is the story of one utterly faithful spouse married to one persistently faithless spouse. And all who struggle with a difficult marriage need to enter into the pain and the persistence of God himself as he struggles with his difficult marriage. Perhaps the most vivid picture of that is given to us in the book of Hosea. One of the most excruciating, painful dramatizations in actual life of the pain that God experiences in his marriage to his people. But the amazing thing is that in chapter 2, God makes these incredible promises. He says in verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. So th- this is after the unfaithfulness, <laughs> right? So we're saying, my wife has been unfaithful, my people have been unfaithful, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to allure her. I'm going to bring her into the wilderness. I'm going to speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Echor as a door of hope, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Interesting, okay? God promises to allure her which is actually a term for seduce in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's used in a sinful context. For instance, in Exodus chapter 22, verse 16. So it's somewhat of a risky word to use. I mean, that God's saying, I'm going to seduce her back. Okay? What I would say is that in the context of marriage, there's a good place, or you might say, there is a place for a good kind of seduction. We're not talking about a seduction that is manipulative. And we're not talking about a seduction that is based upon falsehood. We're not talking about a, a seduction that is empty. It's not a bait and switch. okay? It's not, it's not I'm going to do something to get something for myself or I'm going to do something, but then once you decide to come back, then I'm, well, it was just a bunch of vain and empty promises. I mean, I can't really fulfill that, or make good on those. But it, but it is this idea of there is a drawing back. This is what God says he's going to do. He is going to rekindle, if you will, warmth in a relationship that has gone through tough times. That is what God does with his people. He promises to his unfaithful wife to bring her into the wilderness. This is a, this is a place of trust this is a place where she she had good memories of trusting him if you think about it in the in the context of of an actual marriage what it says to me is it would be like it would be like doing what you can do humanly speaking to to bring back what was or to remind your spouse of what was that was good about your marriage to say Don't you remember that? I mean, and I say most couples can go back. If nothing else, they can go back to the very beginning, right? Again, nobody comes kicking and screaming down the aisle. You could go back to that. What happened? You know, what happened? If we're in a difficult marriage now, I'm saying there are, I think, practical things you can do. We're not talking about manipulation. We're not talking about bait and switch or or making empty promises. I'm saying there are uh, efforts that a spouse can make in a difficult marriage that can serve to allure their husband or their wife back to the way marriage ought to be. And I think we learn this from the way that God deals with his own people. It, It even says there that he speaks kindly to her, which literally means he speaks to her heart. Or again, if you think of it, the heart in the Old Testament, again, it's not so much of an emotional thing in the Old Testament. The concept of the heart has more to do with affections, desires, um, thinking, the will. So if you if you if you look at it in, in in those terms, you say God is appealing to to reason. He's 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 trying to reason with Israel. Okay, in this in this context in, in Hosea, reason with Israel about what's happened appeal to not emotions, but what's at the core of the heart, right? The affections, the drives of the heart, right? We we do what we do because we want what we want. What is he aiming at? The wanting thing, right? He's pointed, putting his finger on what is it that you really want? Because Israel was going out, okay, just I mean, using those marriage relational terms, was was playing the harlot, right? Going out there, all of these lovers out here, and what's interesting in Hosea 2, and we're going to look at this actually soon, but she's turning to her lovers to get these things, and the Scriptures actually tell us that God is the one who's giving her what she is looking for via her lovers, but she doesn't recognize it it's coming from God. She thinks it's coming from her lovers. It's almost as if God is sending care packages via her adulterous relationship to her And she doesn't give God any credit for it, doesn't acknowledge Him at all. But in the end, what's always at the end of sin? When you get down the path of sin, it's vanity, it's empty, it's a vapor, right? That's what we looked at back in Ecclesiastes. So ultimately what happens, there's this sort of a wake-up that this thing that this person's been pursuing, it's not what it was cracked up to be, right? So the Lord is appealing to those things, To to his people, he's speaking kindly. In fact, it's the same same word that when when Boaz was speaking to Ruth, and she's talking about that exchange and how how this how Boaz was speaking kindly to her, and, and she's not. I mean, she may have been thinking in terms of emotion, but she's saying, "I mean, this guy touched my heart. I mean, this guy won me over, right? He he touched the desires, the the affections." It's also what the Lord does to Jerusalem. In Isaiah 40, verse 2, Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God, speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her welfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is covenant faithfulness in marriage. To keep the door of hope open. To welcome back, to forgive even to seduce back, again, in, in, in understanding that in, in, the, in the right way, and to do all in our power to build and to rebuild our marriages. So that this, this tenderness on the part of God is, 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 is incredible. That the, the Lord's wife, if you will, has hurt him tremendously, deserting him and having affairs with rival after rival, and yet he takes her back with loving tenderness. He will make, as so it says, the valley of Accor, which is literally the place of trouble or disturbance, into a door of hope. And we'll look at some of these things down the road, what those references are. But all this got me to thinking, what about those of you who may be in a difficult marriage? We've gone through this series of Song of Solomon. Maybe the Lord has convicted you about the condition of your marriage. You know that things need to change. You, you may want to change them, you see it, but you might be in a situation where you see it, but your spouse doesn't see it. Or maybe your spouse sees it. They just refuse to do anything about it. What do you do? What do you do? I mean, what, what if the Lord has maybe in the, in the last couple of months said, Man, just put his finger on something in your life and in your marriage, and said, "Man, you guys need to you need to work on that." And you're thinking, "I, I, I know, I, we need to do that. I need to do that. I sure wish my spouse could see that, and I wish they would be a part of this, and that they would be as excited about that change as I am." But that may not, may not be the case for everyone. So what do you do? Well, one thing's for sure, you can't make your spouse change, right? Maybe you tried to do that? You know, it doesn't work. Never works. Doesn't, doesn't work. You cannot make, you cannot force feed them these things. You also can't spare your spouse from the consequences of their actions. Because when you do look at the book of Hosea, you have to realize that's not the only thing that is said about Israel's unfaithfulness. I mean, God did not withhold from Israel the consequences of Israel's actions. So it's not... A, let's ignore the consequences and let me just go after them and speak kindly and, and 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 try to win them back and spare them from all of the things that they've, that, you know, the, the consequences of the choices they've made. You can't do that. You can't do that. Well, but what I'm suggesting is that you have to have all these things in view. Okay, there are some consequences that may come in a marriage that a spouse cannot spare their their husband or wife from. They definitely don't need to think and be convinced in their mind they can change their spouse, okay? But don't give up on it either. I mean, don't say, well, you know, they're just going to have to just deal with the consequences. You know, it's not, and what? Be kind, not be gracious, not be forgiving, not have those kinds of attitudes. So what can you do? Well, you can be kind. You can reach out rather than waiting for them to come to you. I find that some spouses just won't reach out. They think they're in the right. They think their spouse is in the wrong, and they're sitting back with their arms crossed. No offense to anybody who's doing that. <laughs> but I'm saying, they're just saying, they're waiting for their spouse to make the first move. And I'm saying, does God do that? I mean, did God sit back and wait for us to make the first move? I'm saying, sometimes it's as simple as just initiating this whole deal and not being pushy, not, not putting throwing it in their face, but reaching out to them. You can do that. You can be inconvenienced. You can learn not to call into question your spouse's motives. You can learn to do that. You, maybe you're bad about that. When your spouse says or does something, you just immediately jump to, I know why they did that. I know why they said that. No, you don't. You don't know that. Paul was concerned that he he, he admitted he didn't even know that in his own life, right? He says, I mean, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that I'm that I have a clear conscience before the Lord in the, in the sense that I know there's always the, the, uh, the possibility that my motives are wrong, right? So you can learn to not do that. You, you can deflesh your communication. Deflesh it. <laughs> what I mean by that is when, when Deepak was talking about those words coming out and then you're like, uh-oh. I mean, I told a couple recently that I was counseling. I said, you're, I said, I hate to even say this, but I said something to my wife couple of weeks ago. And I mean, the minute that it kind I mean, I could, I mean, if I could have grabbed it, just what Deepak is saying, I, if I could have pulled it back in, I knew the minute I knew that was, that was going to be hard. It's going to be hard to work through that. Right. But we can learn to deflesh our communication. Right. Uh, let me say this way. Before you hit send, <laughs> just read it one more time. You know, you deflesh it. Right? I mean, sometimes, I mean, we, we jam out that email or that text or whatever to someone, and, and we haven't defleshed it. <laughs> it's got, mm, yeah, it's got that stinger in it, right? And, and what we're saying may be truthful, but we may not be godly in the way that we're communicating that. We can do that. Wives, you can develop a gentle and quiet spirit. Husbands, you can learn to live with your wife in an understanding way and show her honor you can remind yourself of how long it takes you to change, right? When some, when God, when God, we, when we identify something in our spouse's life that we feel like needs to change, isn't it amazing? I mean, we're, we're ready to go. I mean, we've got to deal with this right now, and they've got to turn this around immediately, and we fail to remember sometimes how many weeks and months went by in our own life, God trying to get our attention about something that needed to change in our relationship with Him or with others, and, and we we put it off, and we put it off, we put it off, and and we tried and we failed and we tried and we failed and we just we don't we don't show that patience that God shows to us. You can learn to make more than one attempt. Say, so well, we tried everything. Really, that's my question. A couple, of, we tried that. Really, so how many times? <laughs> and you say it's one. It's like one or two. They're like, we did. We tried that one time and it didn't work and you and you quit on it. So you gotta you gotta push that. You know, maybe maybe that's you. You've you've tried some things, but you tried once, twice, didn't, didn't go your way, didn't get the result you were looking for, and you just gave up on it. You can refuse to give up. You can be merciful, you can forgive. No marriage will survive, and certainly no marriage, no damaged marriage can be repaired without this kind of mercy, this 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 kindness, this willingness to forgive. On a regular basis, we sin against our spouse in marriage. But the problem in marriage is often not that one spouse does wrong, but that the other will not forgive. One hurts or offends the other in some way, which is bad and it damages the relationship. But what if they repent? What if they turn from the way they've behaved and they come to their spouse for forgiveness, hoping to be welcomed back for the warmth gradually to return? What if now their repentance is thrown back in their face? They are not forgiven, and the chill remains unthawed. Unforgiveness may even be more serious in its consequences than the original offense because it stops reconciliation. It just, it's a logjam at that point. So faithfulness is the heart of marriage. Faithfulness in marriage is modeled on the faithfulness of God. And then thirdly, faithfulness in marriage comes from the faithfulness of God. It comes from the faithfulness of God. It's not just that God is faithful and therefore I have to do my best to be faithful like Him. It's more than that. It's that God is faithful and He pours His faithfulness and grace into my life, which gives me hope that through God's grace, the Lord gives me the moral resources necessary for marriage. That is why Paul writes in Colossians 3.13... As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has to complain against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. We're not just told to grit our teeth and bear it or to grit our teeth and forgive. We are told to forgive as the Lord Jesus has forgiven us. So His forgiveness, is, in a sense, His forgiveness of me is like a river that flows into my life and then out of my life as I forgive others. So marriage isn't easy for any couple. Conflict is hard. It's hard to resolve. Um, hurts are hard to forgive. If it were all up to us and our own moral resources, it would prove impossible. But once we really know the forgiveness of Christ, there is a new dynamic in our hearts. Grace pours into our hearts and that same grace can pour out from our hearts to our husbands and wives to forgive, to reconcile, to follow hurts with welcome and conflict with kindness and tenderness. What you and I need most of all is to know the steadfast, faithful love of God who has never broken a promise yet. He is utterly faithful and trustworthy. If we'll turn to him in trusting obedience, we we can rest our security in his mercy. And on that basis, building on that security, we will be well placed to show faithfulness in marriage. To offer forgiveness when hurt, and to welcome back with tenderness, even when things are at their most painful point. So, here's what I want to do over the next next few Sundays. I want to I want to discuss this topic of conflict resolution, how sort of the nuts and bolts of that. How do we resolve conflict? Not just in our marriages, but in any relationship. Those in our extended family with with coworkers. I, I got a call this week from someone outside of our church in a conflict with someone in our church. <laughs> so hey, I'm way over here in Duluth. I haven't met you before, but I've got a situation going on with one of your church members and and I was thankful. I mean, because they were they they they're open to some sort of a mediation, they're open to some sort of you know, they're they're open to, to biblical input into that situation. They're saying this is going on all the time. So whether it's extended family, coworker, it could be with another believer in this church, and of course with our spouse if we're married. I um, want to talk about how, how to do that, how to, how to honor the Lord in those types of circumstances. So that's that's sort of the plan at this point. And then what I my my thought is that we'll do that. I would say for three, probably three Sundays, three or four Sundays, see how that goes, and then it's very likely. That we will do a short series on the book of Hosea. Okay, now Hosea is 14 chapters. We're not going to do all 14. The if you, the outline or the 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 crux of it, if you will, are, is really bound up in the first four chapters of Hosea. So my thought is that we would go from this t- teaching on conflict resolution because we've sort of touched on it today. I got so engrossed in that when I was just just reading through those passages that I think what we're going to do is for probably two or three months, maybe up through May, we're going to go through the first three or four chapters of Hosea verse by verse. Enough to where you'll go, I understand Hosea, right? When you get into chapter four to the end of the book, that's the actual prophecies themselves and that can be a, a long stretch, okay? I prefer not to do that. Uh, again, I, it's I don't have a problem if people teach that way, I just, I think for our purposes, we may take two, two and a half months, go through the first four chapters of Hosea so that you have a, an understanding of the book, feel for it, and then probably starting in June through the end of the year, we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians. 1 uh, Thessalonians does deal with some issues of the you know, end times, the day of the Lord, those types of things. So what I'd like to do, hopefully it'll work this way, that when we get to some of those passages in Thessalonians, rather than going back and, and, and diving into a ton of different Old Testament texts, we'll be able to go back to more of a near reference to Hosea, because we'll have recently kind of gone through that, and say, okay, now Hosea said it this way, but over here Paul's referring to this, this eschatological thing, this end times thing, but, but it's, it sort of coincides back here with what Hosea said in this chapter. So hopefully we'll be able to actually use Hosea in that way to kind of tie some things together. Maybe it may help us to, to kind of simplify that a little bit. So that's the plan. Uh, we'll talk about conflict resolution in the next few weeks. That'll spill over into a short series on Hosea that'll take us through the spring, and then I think from the summer into the winter uh, we'll go to 1 Thessalonians, and then most likely just on from there to 2 Thessalonians. Um, just try to keep that balance of Old Testament, New Testament. Just I, I like kind of going back and forth. I think that's a, that's a, a good way to approach this. So, any comments about any of that? Any questions about that? If you have any thoughts on it, questions. Let's see, you, you guys have my email. Um, feel free to, to send me your thoughts. Always enjoy, appreciate those discussions that happen sort of on the side as, as uh, you're thinking about these. Uh, these things, what the Lord is teaching us and how you're trying to make the application in your own life and, uh, family. So. Alright guys, good to see you.